0: Well, Happy New Year, podcasters, and welcome to episode number 24 of our Banking Litigation Podcast. I'm joined as ever by my co-host Kerry Morgan and Annabelle Davis behind the glass. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. And uh, we're joined today by Associate and Solicitor Advocate Harriet Tolkien. Welcome back, Harriet.
1: Thank you very much, John. Uh,
0: We've got a couple of months worth of material to get through today. Um, It seems like ages since we uh, last spoke to you. So let's uh, jump straight in. Uh, today's podcast will be a game of two halves, or perhaps a nicer analogy, is a play with two acts. Uh, we're going to open the theatre with one of our classic categories, uh, duties of care owed by financial services institutions. And after the interval, we'll have a medley of procedural developments, which will, of course, include uh, Brexit update. Uh, lots to look forward to, but sadly, an no overpriced ice cream. So the curtain's up with a deep dive into the latest interest rate hedging uh, product uh, mis-selling claim To reach trial.
2: So, should we be expecting more hilariously funny theatre puns then, John?
0: Well, as you were saying to me just before we started, Kerry, the Latin for advocate is actor. So perhaps I should have pursued a career on stage. But anyway, let's get jumping in. The case I've chosen for our deep dive this month is Fine Care Homes and Nat West. And remarkably, podcasters, these interest rate hedging product or IRHP mis selling claims continue to make their way through the courts despite. The underlying facts predating the global financial crisis. So we're talking here about cases that predate 2008 uh, with their facts. This particular one considered a loan and associated hedge that were taken out in 2006 to seven. The headline point is that all of the mis-selling claims were dismissed by the court in full and that included allegations of negligent advice on the suitability of the interest rate hedge And so the court's general approach on this front will be no doubt welcomed by financial institutions. But the part of the decision that really caught my eye was the court's analysis of the doctrine of contractual estoppel and how it should be applied in these types of mis-selling cases.
2: So, John, while I'm sure many of our podcasters will be aware of the doctrine, shall we go back to basics and provide a quick overview?
0: Certainly, Kerry. and, And podcasters, I know that you will all broadly be aware of this, but let's go back the principle of contractual estoppel has its roots in part in the fundamental uh, contract law concept of freedom of contract. The idea is that parties to a contract are generally free to agree whatever terms they like and this can include the existence of a particular state of affairs even if different from the true facts. The doctrine of contractual estoppel prevents the parties from later uh, arguing anything to the contrary. So putting this into a mis context. Banks will often sell financial products on what they call an execution-only basis. In other words, where the bank agrees not to advise the customer on what product to buy and is not paid an advisory fee. In this type of situation, the contract will contain a clause to the effect that the customer has not received advice and has not relied on any advice from the bank. And we generally refer to these types of clauses as no advice clauses. And they come up a fair bit in IRHP claims. As these things tend to go, um, if the uh, interest rate hedging product performs badly, then the customer typically argues that the bank took on an advisory duty and breached the duty, notwithstanding the clear wording of the no advice clause in the contract. In this type of case, doctrine of contractual estoppel will be relied upon by the bank as part of his armoury in defending the claim to support the bank's argument that it did not owe advisory duties, the customers in response typically run uh, an argument that the no advice clause is in fact an exclusion clause and is invalid on the basis that it's unreasonable under the Unfair Contract Terms Act 1997, or UCTA for short.
2: Yeah, it's the classic fact pattern we've seen repeated in many of these mis-selling claims. And there's some difficult case law on whether UCTA applies to no advice clauses. So I was interested to read this one.
0: Yes, indeed, Kerry. So look, looking at, at fine care homes specifically, the question for the court was whether the bank could rely on its no advice clause. And in good news for the banks, the court said that the no advice clause in question was not subject to UCTA when relied on in response to a breach of advisory duty claim. In a nutshell, this was because the no advice clause was not seeking to exclude liability, What was instead defining the party's primary rights and obligations.
1: So is that just a different way of saying that no advice clauses are basis clauses rather than exclusion clauses? That's the way that I've heard the distinction described before. By basis clause, I mean a clause that defines the basis upon which the parties have agreed to contract.
0: Yeah, pretty much yes, that's right. Uh, For some reason the court doesn't seem to like the term basis clause anymore since the Court of Appeals decision a few years ago now in First Tower.
2: Now I'm sure you'll be expecting an interjection from me at the mention of First Tower, John, because there are some obvious tensions between the fine care home judgments and First Tower.
0: I'm not surprised at all Kerry, I recall it's a decision close to your heart. Uh, You're right, there's a degree of conflict between the two judgments uh, on the application of ACTA to no advice clauses. Uh, The comments in First Tower uh, suggest that ACTA may apply to no advice clauses in certain circumstances, but they were made obiter dicta and were therefore not binding. And those comments were in fact considered by uh, the court in fine care homes, but ultimately not followed. But for those uh, of you podcasters who are not so familiar with the First Tower judgment, In that case, the Court of Appeal considered the effect of a non-reliance clause rather than a no-advice clause. And it found that where the effect of a a non-reliance clause is to exclude liability for misrepresentation, which would otherwise exist in the absence of the clause, the clause will be subject to the UCTA unreasonableness test.
1: It really emphasises the important difference between non-reliance clauses and no-advice clauses. But what about where a clause talks about the customer not relying on a recommendation made by a bank? Which camp will that fall in?
0: Uh, Well, Harry, this is exactly where it all starts to get rather complicated. But I think the best approach is to look at the nature of the claim. If the claim is made under the Misrepresentation Act, then you're more likely to be relying on the clause in question as a non-reliance clause. In contrast, if the claim is for a breach of tortious advisory duty, then the clause is more likely to be operating as a no-advice clause.
2: So taking a step back, <clears throat> this decision is pretty good news for financial institutions then, both both in terms of the overall outcome and the analysis of contractual estoppel and mis-selling cases.
0: It, it really is Kerry, yes. Uh, while in many circumstances a no advice clause is likely to meet the requirements of reasonableness under UCTA, this decision removes that hurdle for banks uh, to clear in order to rely on the clause.
1: And I believe we have a blog post on this decision.
0: We absolutely do, Harriet, Uh, the link to which is, as ever, in the show notes. Kerry, I think you're up next, um, again with some decisions close to your heart, the Quince Care uh, duty. Um, Over to you.
2: Yeah, thanks, John. So I'll start off with Philip and Barclays Bank, which is the more recent of two judgments considering the Quince Care duty. I must say this case is really useful from a bank's perspective and the headline point is that the court has confirmed that the current scope of the quince care duty is not owed to individuals but is in fact limited to protecting corporate customers and or unincorporated associations such as partnerships.
0: Okay, while I'm Uh, in no doubt at all that there may be some Quince Care fanatics out there. Shall we give our podcasters a quick 101 of what this Quince Care duty of care entails?
2: Yeah certainly John, I do love the idea of Quince Care fanatics, I think Mm -hmm. I might be one. So these lines are definitely well rehearsed from previous editions of the podcast. So the Quince Care duty arises where a bank has received a payment mandate from an authorised signatory of its customer and executed that order, but in circumstances where there were red flags to suggest that the order was an attempt to misappropriate the funds of the customer. It's an objective test to be judged by the standard of an ordinary prudent banker. I won't go into too much detail on the facts of this one, and instead I'll engage in a bit of a shameless plug to let you all know about a special edition of our podcast, which is dedicated entirely to the quince care duty to satisfy the need of those fanatics. Um, it will go live on all of the usual channels once we have had the chance to record. I have to admit that the homeschooling of two primary school age children while working has rather interfered with my podcasting schedule, um, but do make sure to subscribe to our usual channels to avoid missing out.
0: I can empathise Kerry, but I look forward to tuning in for the Fanatics episode.
2: <laughs> Thanks John, <laughs> they will name it that. Um, so before addressing the key takeaways of the case, I'll provide our listeners with a little bit of background. The claim took place in the context of an authorised push payment fraud, also known as an app fraud, where the third party fraudster tricked the bank's customer into willingly instructing the bank to transfer large sums out of her account which were then misappropriated. The court said that the parameters of the current quince care duty are limited to protecting corporate customers because it's all based around the idea of an instruction being given to the bank by a trusted agent of the customer, where that agent essentially turns out not to have been so trustworthy and the bank should have realised. And there's no trusted agent involved where the customer is an individual, because, of course, that individual is giving the instruction to the bank directly on behalf of themselves. So the court considered whether the quince care duty should be extended to protect an individual customer specifically in the context of an app fraud claim like this. But it wasn't persuaded to do so, saying that um, that
1: would essentially be contrary to the principles underpinning the duty. It's certainly an interesting decision in terms of the evolution of the quince care duty.
2: Yeah, definitely. Most of the recent judgments considering Quince Care have tended to broaden the scope of the GTE. So it's good news for banks to have a decision limiting the beneficiaries, which should help to reduce the risk profile for these sorts of claims.
1: And what do you think it means more generally for APP fraud claims?
2: Well, from May 2019, there's been a voluntary contingent reimbursement model code that really rolls off the trunk, uh, which seeks to compensate victims of app frauds, um, and it's funded by banks for that purpose. Uh, but interestingly, the current case would not have fallen within the scope of the scheme, because even if the fraud had taken place within the catchment time period, um, the payment in question was made to an international account, which is a situation not covered by the scheme. But for any payments made prior to 2019, then banks will be able to rely upon the Philip and Barclays judgment to defend app fraud claims, which are based on Quince Care type duties.
0: Thank you, Kerry. And for your Quince Care Encore?
2: Uh, yeah, I have a very quick one on Roberts and RBS. So this involved a classic breach of quince schedule duty claim and interestingly, the court granted the bank's application for reverse summary judgment on the basis that the claims were time barred under the Limitation Act 1980. So I think the implications of this judgment are twofold. Firstly, the decision confirms that the court will, in appropriate cases, take a robust approach in dismissing care claims, which on the facts are clearly time-barred. And this is especially where the necessary facts required to plead a prima facie case of breach were within the claimant's knowledge at an earlier date than contended. But secondly, it demonstrates that a prima facie case for a breach of quince care duty could be pleaded by the claimant from inference, possibly meaning simply inferred from the fact of payment. So I think from the perspective of financial institutions, there may be mixed feelings on this one. It's helpful in the context of a bank's limitation, defence and general robust approach from the court to determine the claim summarily, be it quince care duty claim or otherwise, But on the flip side, it's less helpful to the extent it suggests a low threshold applies to the pleading requirements for quince care duty claims.
0: Well, thank you, Kerry. That was uh, very interesting, very useful as well. If you'd like to find out about the decisions in a bit more detail and their implications, please head over to the show notes. So we're now in our virtual interval. Uh, Take your seats in the Crush Bar um, or queue up for an overpriced gin and tonic. It's funny how we miss... These things, it seems an age since we've been able to complain about them. But putting that to one side, um, Harriet, uh, step forward as our leading lady uh, for your solo on procedural development.
1: Thanks John. I thought I would lead with the decision of the Supreme Court, handed down at the beginning of the month in KBR and the Serious Fraud Office. Um, Now this case considered whether the SFO can require a foreign company to produce documents held overseas, pursuant to its investigation powers under Section 2.3 of the Criminal Justice Act 1987. The High Court had previously found that the SFO could compel the production of such documents on the basis of a sufficient connection between the foreign company and the UK. However, the Supreme Court found unanimously against this broad extraterritorial impact that the High Court had read into Section 2.3 of the Act.
0: So there's no Court of Appeal judgment, uh, Harriet. That that sounds awfully like a leapfrog appeal to me.
1: Yes, that's right, John. Um, Because the case concerned a point of law of general public importance, it was appealed directly to the Supreme Court. It all sounds slightly complicated for those unfamiliar with criminal legislation and the document compulsion powers of the SFO, but in essence, the practical effect of the judgment is that foreign group entities that hold documents overseas Will not find themselves on the receiving end of a Section 2.3 notice should a UK based group entity be under SFO investigation. And that is good news for multinational corporations. Now, this doesn't mean that foreign group entities will be insulated from SFO investigations. Documents held in another jurisdiction can still be obtained through international agreements concerning mutual legal assistance. But these mechanisms are significantly more cumbersome and slow from the SFO's perspective. Given the parallel between the SFO's document compulsion powers and those of the FCA under the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000 or FISMA, the ruling also serves as a helpful indication that the FCA's similar statutory powers don't extend to compel foreign group companies to produce overseas held documents within the context of an FCA investigation into a group company based in the UK. Our CCI team has produced a blog post on this judgment And I believe that a further one is in the pipeline, which will have more details.
0: Thank you very much, Harriet, very thorough. And the link uh, to that is in the uh, show notes. Uh, Speaking of leapfrogs, I think you're about to leapfrog over to your second case.
1: I certainly am, John. Um, My next procedural development comes from Roe and Ingenious Media Holdings. This is a court of appeal judgment which provides some welcome guidance on the circumstances in which a defendant seeking security for costs may be required to provide a cross undertaking in damages. In good news for banks, given their frequent position as defendants, the court held that cross undertakings should only be required as a condition of security costs in rare and exceptional cases and where the claimants are funded by a commercial litigation funder in even rarer and more exceptional cases.
2: That's quite a big shift from previous first instance decisions, um, a number of which indicated an emerging practice of cross undertakings being generally required, I think.
1: Yes, absolutely. But luckily for financial institutions, uh, these decisions should no longer be followed.
0: Uh, And Harriet, what exactly was the reason uh, or the court's reasoning for this U-turn?
1: Well, John, the court commented that it was critical to the business of litigation funders that they are adequately capitalised so that they can meet any potential liabilities arising from the litigation they choose to fund, and it follows that there should rarely be any need for security from a properly run litigation funder, and disallowing cross-undertakings where security is required from a litigation funder, and I quote, can be expected to incentivise improvements in the way in which commercial the commercial litigation funding market operates. The Court also suggested that if there were to be a new practice in this area, it would be best developed by primary or delegated legislation, uh, particularly in light of the likely effects on the litigation funding market and the potential engagement of considerations of access to justice.
0: All right, well, thank you very much again, Harriet. And podcasters, as ever, uh, please uh, have a look in the show notes for more information. And now to round off the hat trick, um, Harry, what's your third and final?
1: Well, I just wanted to highlight quickly that the final versions of the witness evidence reforms have now been published and will come into force on the 6th of April, applying to all trial witness statements in the business and property courts signed on or after that date, um, subject to some very limited exceptions. Now, these are some very significant changes indeed. And you can read about them if you head over to our litigation blog post, a link to which is in the show notes.
0: Yeah, uh, podcasters, I, I really would encourage you to have a look at this. I've been to a couple of lectures on this and uh, very important, the changes are are creating a very different landscape. Um, but as Harriet says, have a look in the show notes. And now, uh, before the curtain falls, time for uh, our finale. Uh, I'll give you a very quick overview of how jurisdiction and enforcement is looking since the Brexit transition period came to an end uh, on the 31st of December 2020. Well, podcasters, uh, we found ourselves in a bit of a vacuum. Uh, While the UK and EU finalised the trade and cooperation agreement at the end of last year, as many of you know, this did not deal with commercial dispute resolution in cases involving the UK and the EU. uh, And therefore, there's still quite a bit of uncertainty in this area. But in short, the position right now is this. The Recast Brussels Regulation no longer applies to jurisdiction and enforcement between the UK and the EU unless proceedings were commenced before the end of 2020. The UK did rejoin the 2005 Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements on the 1st of January 2021 in its own right. This therefore applies as between the UK and the EU in matters falling within its scope, but importantly for the Hague Convention to apply an exclusive jurisdiction clause is required. A non-exclusive jurisdiction clause does not suffice. And thirdly, the UK has applied in its own right to accede to the Lugano Convention, but the EU has still not indicated whether it will consent. And we should have some clarity on this by April of this year, which will mark the one year anniversary since the UK's application, but that's not guaranteed. But for some finer details, head over to our litigation blog post, which is linked in the show notes. Well, uh, podcasters, that brings us to the end of another episode. Um, Harriet, thank you very much for your very uh, fulsome uh, uh, performances. Uh, Kerry, thank you as ever for um, co-hosting. And Annabelle, thank you very much uh, from behind the glass for making this all happen. Uh, Until we speak uh, in the spring, podcasters, thank you very much and goodbye.